This is Bob Rook with Business Leaders Podcast, and today we're at the world headquarters of Peak Structural with Paul Sutton. He's the owner of Peak Structural. Paul, thank you for taking time out of your busy morning. Yeah, absolutely, Bob. Happy to be on the program. Hey, thank you so much. Paul, tell us about your business and who you serve. Well, we serve uh, primarily a residential clientele. Literally 90 plus percent of our work is going to be on or underneath a home. We do some light commercial work as well, but most of our products and services are really geared toward the residential market space. And so geographically, our area covers really upwards of Longmont on the north side of Denver and up there in Loveland, Boulder, Westminster, all the way through the Denver metro, and then all the way south, uh, really down to the New Mexico border. So it's uh, it's quite a footprint. It's quite a large sandbox that we play in. You know, and, and for the folks that don't happen to be in Colorado, that's a stretch with traffic. Yeah, that's several several hundred miles north to south along a interstate corridor. And you've got a major metropolitan area, of course, with Denver, Colorado Springs kind of up and coming, and then Pueblo to the south. So the three different distinct uh, metro areas amongst a lot of other suburbs and hamlets scattered in there as well. You know, and, and, and for folks that are going peak structural, what is peak structural what are the problems that you guys solve? Yeah, that's a great question. Sometimes we're initially confused with some kind of a steel erection company. We put up skyscrapers or something like that. Not the case. Uh, our company specializes in foundation repairs, permanent solutions to foundation problems that homes here in Colorado can get into and, and elsewhere in, you know, in the country as well. It's certainly not unique to our climate here, but we do have some very active soils here in the Front Range. And that can lead to instability with homes, uh, with the foundation itself. It can sometimes settle or crack or even heave upwards. And then kind of an ancillary service that we work with uh, is concrete leveling. So before a foundation is ever going to move, you're going to see movement in a concrete slab typically. So driveways, porches, sidewalks, stoops, patios, those kinds of things readily move. And when they do, oftentimes uh, they can create trip hazards and really become more of a nuisance, actually even become a, a real hazard to, you know, health for folks coming and going. And so the concrete leveling is another aspect of ground movement that we provide services to, you know, mitigate against, correct those problems, put a long-term warranty on that as well. And then we've got uh, two other services that also pertain to the kind of the underbelly of the home, if you will. And that would be basement waterproofing. Oftentimes goes hand in hand with structural problems. If if you've got too much water present around or underneath a foundation, oftentimes it's going to find a way in. And uh, of course, you know, in, in many homes and other types of structures, if, if you've got finished space below grade, you got a problem. You know, you got wet carpet or moldy sheetrock or just damage to furnishings, things like that. And from the health aspect, you know, when you've got a very humid or dank environment in a basement, you're just inviting and encouraging mold to grow. Uh, which can be a real health concern for for folks. And so we, we want to come in and install, again, a permanently designed solution that's going to provide everything that's needed to keep the basement dry all the time, keep the whole basement dry all the time, as we like to say. And then the fourth service line really would pertain to crawl spaces. So again, it's it's typically in those areas of the home that a lot of people, A, may not know a lot about or B, may not want to go and get involved and get their hands dirty in a nasty crawl space. But what we've learned over the years is, you know, the research on building science has shown is that dirt crawl spaces are a really bad idea. And they were provided for in the building code for decades. The thought was, well, if we put vents on 
we can get the air moving through it so that it won't accumulate moisture and cause, again, problems with mold, rot, things like that. But the research has actually shown that the opposite is true, that the best thing you can do for a crawl space that has those kinds of problems is to seal up those vents, put in an insulation system, and then a, a thick vapor barrier to, to isolate the home above from the damp, damp earth below. So we completely encapsulate the crawl space, uh, which does a lot of things. It lowers the humidity, mold stops growing. It's a conditioned environment so that the main floor just above it is not cold in the winter anymore. It's not, mm -hmm. you know, that mm -hmm. cold winter air blasting in there. You've actually got, you know, a conditioned, much more comfortable space. So those are really the four things in terms of what we're known for and what we really specialize in. Structural foundation repair, concrete slab leveling, basement waterproofing, and crawl space encapsulation. Well, you know, the, the part for me is I think I've had all of those between a house here and a house in Tennessee where there's a lot of moisture. You know, I had a flooding uh, tornado shelter and, you know, I had heaving driveway, you know, from all the years and whatnot and all the issues. And the one thing I know from the house in Tennessee is that it's for sale. And anytime you get anything that remotely resembles anything in a foundation, that a potential buyer goes up and left quickly. Right. Right. You know, your house is virtually unsellable until you solve the issue. Right. Well, and what the good news, though, in that, Bob, is that most people find when they really look at their options and, and see what's out there and, you know, consider what what might be the best thing to do for this this house before I sell it. Generally, what people find is that the cost of the repair, you know, the well-designed engineered repair mm -hmm. that's going to be permanent will be far less than the discount taken you know, at the closing table. Mm -hmm. If you go ahead and market that thing with a, a known structural defect, you're going to take a beating on the price. Yeah. And in some cases, you'll find that your typical owner-occupier, you know, single-family home dweller is is just not interested in buying that house. So it becomes an investor yes. you know, opportunity. And of course, they're going to be, you know, grinding hard to get that price down. So the good news, though, is that the repair will normally cost you far less than selling the house and getting beat up on the price because of the defect that you left unaddressed. Do you think the average homeowner knows that? That's hard to say. You know, that that's something that we we try to educate folks mm -hmm. about. And, you know, some people may say, well, that's kind of self-serving, isn't it? How convenient, you know, that you can repair my home for weighing the economic scales and, mm -hmm. and as you're describing. But, but that is the reality of it. So, I mean, if a person's got, you know, of course, housing values vary drastically depending on who's listening to us where in the country. But mm -hmm. let's just say you have a, you know, a, a $300,000 home. Mm -hmm. Nothing extraordinarily out there in terms of price or square footage, just a, a reasonably modest home that you might find in many markets in North America. You know, that thing's got a structural problem. You know, as a seller wanting to liquidate, wanting to move on and, and sell that place, you could be looking at a 10, 15, maybe even 20% discount off the cost of that property mm -hmm. you know if you if you market with that defect right so you're looking at 30 maybe 40 50 60 thousand dollars discount you're going to take mm -hmm. well those dollars will go a long long way there are relatively few structural problems we run into that get into that kind of money you know I, fix. I i think people you know the, the buyer has the uncertainty that they deal with I have no idea what it's going to take to repair. Or it's the investor and he goes, I know exactly what it's going to cost to repair and I can discount and make this work. You know, and, yeah. and I think for the uncertainty of the purchaser, you know, that's one more uncertainty you don't have to answer. You know, and so in, in my experience, personal experience, a whole lot better to address the problem than not. That's right. And of course, 
you know, an alternative to the seller fixing the problem first may be, you know, the seller provides a proposal from a company like ours mm -hmm. to the buyer and says, look, yeah, we have this issue, but, you know, here's a credible company that can take care of it. Here's what it would cost. So let's adjust that off the price. Well, if you're the buyer, you're like, well, is that really all that's wrong? Mm -hmm. You know, is that really mm -hmm. the complete scope of work that's needed? You know, there's that skepticism that's going to probably translate into maybe a less robust offer. Whereas if the seller takes care of it, you know, it's past tense. It's done. Here's the contract. Here's the warranty behind the company. Yes. You know, and I took care of this so that you wouldn't have to. And you guys have been around a long time. We've been around 17 years at this point. You know, we, we were talking a little bit before the show. And you have general contractor background before you decided to start this business. When you started this business, how many folks were involved in the business? Well, it's like so many other American small business stories. Yeah. We're very typical in that sense. My wife and I started the business with a little home office and a rented storage locker. Uh -huh. And so it was really myself working most actively in the business with uh -huh. a handful of two, three, four other individuals. Um, initially, as you tend to do, you know, in, in starting so many small businesses, you're kind of bootstrapping it. You're doing a lot of functions yourself. You're doing- You have complete control. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Maybe a little bit too much. Yeah. Uh, but everything from marketing to estimating to sales to mm -hmm. scheduling to production, installation, you know, all accounting, uh, that's just how it goes sometimes. Small business a lot America of, a lot of to start. Businesses. Yeah. And so the initial few employees were crew members. I needed some some help and some skilled labor. And uh, so that was, uh, that was what it looked like at the very beginning. And to contrast, how many employees do you have now? Today we have 84 employees. You know, so I, I think about that transition over the years, you know, and go, that's a fairly large percentage increase of employees. As you look back over that journey, was there a, a point where you said, you know what, we really need to take and start thinking differently about the company or about expanding or how many employees have? Was there a point where that came to mind? There have been a series of points uh -huh. really along the way because you, you know, reality has a way of talking to you and telling <laughs> you what you need to, what you need to hear, what uh -huh. you need to adjust. And I, I find that not only does that reality exist within the mind and emotions of the entrepreneur and the pressures that they're mm -hmm. dealing with and the problems that they're solving, but it also exists, you know, in the mind of the customers and the, the general public out there. And one of my mentors told me years ago, he said, the marketplace is an e incredibly efficient feedback mechanism. <laughs> it, yeah, it, it is willing to share. That's right. Uh, yeah. That's right. Uh, and so if we ever forget about that as a business owner, we maybe feel like, gosh, you know, this customer is being a little bit unfair about the situation mm -hmm. or what have you. I find that all it takes is to flip the tables around, put myself back in the customer's shoes, mm -hmm. which all of us are customers every day, right? Yep. We're, we're buying, we're consuming services and products. And so we're, we're always the customer. We're, it's, we're never far away from that role. Mm -hmm. And we can easily remind ourselves and recall how quickly we may get our hackles up over mm -hmm something less than stellar service or something less than a good value in a product that we bought. You know, we, we know what that's like to feel like, hey, I put down my good hard-earned money here and I don't like what I got for it. Mm -hmm. So sometimes we need to be reminded of that, I think, as business owners, that folks will tell us where we need to improve, guaranteed, and we can ignore them to our own peril because they're really trying to help us become better, I feel, in providing a better service, a higher level, a more consistent service, in a case like a company like ours, which is 
entirely service-based in the home improvement space. It's always about the service. And um, so the market will give us lots of feedback, lots of signals, as well as the stresses within the organization as you grow, really to your question about, Mm -hmm. you know, some moments of awareness maybe where you begin to have these aha moments and say, you know what, things were running pretty smoothly last year at X level, but now we're at X 1.5 level. And I can see that we need to do some redefining of how our systems work internally. We need to change our internal communication. We need better training of our employees. You know, the, as, mm-hmm. as you begin to grow and scale up, the pressures of that growth, find the cracks, find the weaknesses in your, in your structure and force you to, to confront them. You know, I, I think about that. And as, as you're faced with that and, you know, you either have a mentor or you have an inventory of tools or you hire an outside coach, for lack of a better term. Right. You know, and, and for you guys, I was going through your website and looking at the reviews and so on. You guys have an awesome culture within your team. I mean, I can see it in the reviews and you wouldn't have great reviews if you didn't have a good culture. How do you take and transmit that culture from top down throughout your service teams? So that's a big, hot topic these days, isn't mm-hmm. it? Every, every organization is, for the most part, highly aware of and, and focusing on building that culture. Mm-hmm. And I think there may not just be one answer to that question. First of all, I think that for the owners and depending on whatever the team or organization looks like, probably there's some other key leaders, influential people that are, are looked up to you know, within the organization. Well, it certainly starts with, with those at the top, mm-hmm. so to speak. If we don't believe that people are what matter most, beginning with our team here, our employees, our family here, they matter most. And we actually have one of our stated big ideas that we run the company on is our purpose, which is growing our people to their fullest potential. Mm-hmm. I believe that. I get energized by that. And I hope that I've attracted a handful of leaders and managers here that also share that same value, that same genetic predisposition, if you mm-hmm. will, that, you know, we want to do some good in this world, right? Mm-hmm. Sure, there are, there are financial realities and every business needs to be profitable. And, and those, those things are, are always there. But once you get a little bit beyond that, as far as you're driving, you know, what's motivating me today when I come into work, and you mm-hmm. begin to think about, you know, at a little bit higher level, for us, it's about the people here. And, you know, one of the current gurus du jour of, of our day and our era is Simon Sinek, who famously mm-hmm. said, before customers can love a company, the employees have to love the company. Mm-hmm. And so we believe that culture begins with taking care of our people, training them, growing them, developing them, mm-hmm. holding them accountable. You know, there's, there's a, a hard edge and there's a soft edge. You know, the soft edge, you know, is, is training, it's encouragement, it's relationship. And the hard edge is, you know what, at the end of the day, every human activity in a business can be reduced to a number. Mm-hmm. If you doubt that, take a look at your paycheck, mm-hmm. right? And so those are the hard edge aspects of the culture that, that we, we are here to perform. We are here to get results for people. And so... Yes, we care about each other on a personal level. And yes, we want to nurture those relationships and, you know, and, and so forth. And at the same time, we're here to get better together. Iron sharpens mm-hmm. iron, right? We're here to, mm-hmm. to improve um, our skills and our, our abilities together so that we can be more effective for our customers. 
I, I could talk for hours on culture, but mm -hmm. what I'm trying to get at here, Bob, I, I hope is making some sense that culture starts with owners, shareholders, stakeholders, leaders, and managers within any organization. And if they don't believe it, it's not really who they are on the inside. It's not going to happen. It won't manifest, you know, within mm -hmm. the organization. I was thinking as you, as you were talking of measurement and leadership and levers. And I was recently at a big talk for some guy that knows something. And he was talking about the difference between engagement and being fulfilled in your work. Said so you can be really, really busy and yet not find meaning in your work, being fulfilled by the work, which I think is what you were touching on when you've got the folks who are believing in the mission. And then the other thing that struck me is as a client of somebody that repaired a space where it quit leaking, the absolute relief that you experience when you go, what do you mean it's not flooded today? No, it's not flooded today. What about tomorrow? Not flooded tomorrow? No, it's, it's dry again. And I think for you guys, that's an extraordinary tangible result from really good work that your customers experience. Yeah, there is that emotional sense of relief and confidence. Yeah. And I don't have to worry about if I go out of town over the weekend and we're getting a we're in a rainy spell, right? Like what's happening in my home when I'm not there? I don't have to have that worry anymore because I, I've I've done what's necessary mm -hmm. to really ensure that I'm not going to have a problem there. Whether whether it's 2 a.m. and there's a thunderstorm rolling through, or whether you know I'm home during the day, or whether I'm gone on the weekend, whatever it is, you know, there's and it's gratifying to be able to give people that peace of mind and and know that valuables and potentially you know heirloom uh, materials or memorabilia that they have stored in their basement they don't have to worry about. Mm -hmm. So we, we really love being able to do that for You know, I, I wonder, for the folks that have never had that problem, I don't know that they can quite grasp how good it feels. But, you know, from having had the problem, and I've, I've belabored the point, I'm sure, but it's amazing how much better you feel as well. It really rained hard, and somebody says, yeah, and everything's dry, don't worry about it. And that's a big deal. That's right. That's right. And, <laughs> and as you, I think, kind of alluded to, if you haven't had the problem, it may not feel as tangible the magnitude of what that's like to yes. have your home invaded with water and have yes. the, all the damage and all the loss of furnishings. It's a little bit hard to put yourself in that person's shoes if you haven't had that experience yourself, yeah. but it, it is no fun. And for the folks that have been in those shoes, they're all going like, yeah, we get it. I understand. You bet. You know, you, you were talking a little bit about the measurement in, in financials and so on, you know, and, and rolling with the clock back to in the early part of the years, you know, typical PL and and you know, you kind of did what the CPA would say. From the progression of your financials, would you say that your financials are much more robust now for looking at the levers in your business and what to pull and what's going on? In terms of clarity on, yeah. on how to turn which, the dials. Yeah, and, which product and, line and, and so on and so forth. Oh, without a doubt. Without a doubt. Yeah. We're able to understand our our profitability per job, per service or product type and really see where either pricing may be off a little bit, or maybe we need to get a little bit more efficient in how we're installing something. Mm -hmm. There are lots and lots of opportunities to improve efficiencies through logistics in a company like ours. Are we buying things as efficiently as we can in terms of our inventory, our products? Mm -hmm. uh, are we ordering smart? Are we consolidating freight charges? Are, there's so many things that go into the profitability of a, mm -hmm. of a job or a a month or a quarter, whatever unit of measure you may want to look at. And having a professional company controller and accounting team here now, you know, has brought a tremendous amount of clarity in areas that 
we used to never quite know exactly what the numbers were. You know, it's, it's funny. I was I was talking to a business valuation person the other day, and he says, you know, and, and parenthetically, you should have good financials. And he goes, I should be taller. Yeah, but what does that mean? You know, does it allow you to take and make intelligent decisions about feed, starve, you know, which area is doing well, and so on and so forth? Do you remember back when you first got a big aha from your financials and what that looked like or felt like? I do. There was a particular product line at the time that was really generating most of our revenue, Mm -hmm. but was actually marginally profitable. And so when I finally kind of did business with that fact Mm -hmm. and that aha moment, you know, that that was not a fun aha moment, Mm -hmm. right? It was like, oh my gosh, this is one of the things that we that we do a lot of, and here we are, you know, struggling to make it work financially. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that leads, of course, into some of those questions again about, you know, the efficiency of our operation. I mean, you you can't just raise prices all the time, right? That's You can until you get feedback. That's right. That's right. So part of the wonder of a free market, a competitive (laughs) marketplace is that, you know, there's always the pressure to deliver the most value possible yes. for the, the price that you're charging. And there's, there's a limit, right? I mean, none of us have the uh, luxury of just raising prices indiscriminately. So we, we work in a competitive environment. Mm-hmm. And so if our pricing is where it needs to be, well, then why aren't we profitable in this area? You mm-hmm. know, and that's where, you know, you look at the training, you look at how efficiently a crew is operating, you know, on installation day. Mm-hmm based on the preparation and training that we've given them leading up to that. Mm-hmm. And you find where areas that need to improve. And, and so, again, reality is trying to talk to us all the time and trying to tell us where we need to make changes. You know, it's, it's interesting. I think, you know, you have this, many will have an internal narrative. This is what I think. This is, you know, a preconceived notion. And then you look at the facts and they don't jive with the preconceived notion. And you go, well, there's a disconnect. And it's really hard, I think, when you're knee deep in the business to step back and look on the business for you, if you were to look at the difference between being in the business and on the business, how much time do you think you're on the business as opposed to in it? At this point, I'm probably 80% on it. That's impressive. Yeah. I, I am involved in some of the day to day, but it's more of an advisory capacity than it is Mm -hmm. actually doing it. Mm -hmm. You know, I may look at a, take a look in one of our departments and, you know, spend a, a bit of time there asking some questions, peeling back a couple layers and getting into some of the, the weeds in terms of the function of what goes on in that department. Mm-hmm. But usually it's, it's not for the purpose of here, let me show you how to do this better. Watch me, you know, I'll teach you. It, it's not so much that as it typically is asking a lot of questions, getting the best understanding that I can, can get of what the challenges mm-hmm. are there. And then, trying to get the resources needed, whether it's different equipment or different training or, you know, a different process that could help to improve our efficiency there and trying to advise and guide those mm-hmm. types of improvements. You know, in a, in a very, very small organization, we talked about, you know, as, we, as I got started with this thing, just a few of us, you not only get to do a whole lot of different things, but you better do them pretty well. You have to be competent, right? If, mm-hmm. if something's worth doing, you better do it well. But there comes a point where over time I realize there are people here that are more expert than I am, more specialized than I am, more knowledgeable than I am in some aspect of what this Mm -hmm. company does, some function that takes place here. And they're better than I am. 
And I'm okay with that. You know, that's a that's an interesting spot to get to, isn't it? You know, from I drive my own company and I'm responsible and I'm the technician and and one day you wake up and you go, but this person over here is infinitely better at that task than I ever was. Mm-hmm. Interesting place to get to. Yeah, I think it's a great place to get to it. You know, you get a chance to check your ego, right? To admit to yourself that, yeah. all right, I'm not the be all end all of mm-hmm. every skill, every bit of knowledge, every bit of expertise that this company needs to have. You know, you you have to be able to say, I'm okay with that. Mm-hmm. You know, I I don't have to be the man who's got his fingers in, you know, every, every aspect of things here. But, you know, you have a chance to check your pride. Maybe, maybe you're carrying a little bit too much there and, and those are opportunities to do that. But then there's the excitement and the relief of saying, wow, we've got somebody who's outstanding in this role, doing better than I did mm-hmm. with it when I was in this role years ago. And that's a relief to me. That doesn't have to be a pry it out of my fingers kind of thing. I can let go and give this person, you know, the the freedom, the empowerment, the resources to excel in that role. And that's a good thing for me. I, that's mm-hmm. one little piece of my life that I get back. Mm-hmm. So that's the way I look at it. You know, as, as you look at where you are in the business now and you look at the early years where you were actually in the field doing, mm-hmm. what value does the experience of having done help you when you're working with team members now to have an understanding of what they're tasked with? Yeah, I... I think it behooves a CEO to have a commanding grasp on the nature of the, the services, the products. I think you want to have somebody that's, that's been hands-on, that, that really understands the work that's being done and the value that's being delivered to the customer. I don't think that's a bad thing. But I do think that can hold a CEO back in a growing mm-hmm. organization if he or she can't shake loose of that mm-hmm. and can't realize that this organization needs me to be somebody now that I was not two years ago or five years ago. This organization needs a different leader than the leader of 2016 or mm-hmm. 2012 or whatever. And if I'm too attached to the work that we do and the technical aspects of those services and whatnot, but then I can't become the leader that this organization needs me to mm-hmm. be. And you know, it's like, I don't know who came up with these analogies. They're, they're all over the place. And, and I think they get bounced around in different books and seminars and podcasts. But the bottleneck is at the top of the bottle, mm-hmm. right? And that happens so often. And I've been there with this company as we've gone through different levels of growth where I was a little bit slow to let go of something and replace myself with somebody who was more competent than I was. Well, there's risk in letting go. Perceive risk. Sure. Yes. And it's scary because, you know, that's another salary. That's more overhead. You mm-hmm. know, that means that, you know, what we did last month that worked, we have to go out and do it again next month. Mm-hmm. You know, last month can't have been a fluke, you know, because we've now added staff. We've, you know, we've brought in, you know, additional overhead commitments and whatnot. So, yeah, it is scary. It can be nervy. It's it's not as though that the path is always flat and solid and broad in front of mm-hmm. you. It doesn't feel that way usually. You know, I was thinking as you were talking, you've been through some interesting economic times. 2008 timeframe comes to mind. You know, and the business up to 2007, I think, like many, it just, they go along. 2008, 2009, 10, significantly different business environment. If there were one or two lessons that came out of the 08, 09 timeframe, what were they? For us, they were that 
confronting a recession or confronting a slower business cycle needs to be looked at differently depending on the size and market share and maturity of a company. Mm -hmm. So in those years, 07, 8, 9, 10, we did nothing but grow. And if you think about it, at a super basic level, the economics makes sense because new housing construction was way, way down. Mm -hmm. Our business is not tied to new housing construction, and it's really not really tied to interest rates either, Mm -hmm. for the most part. So if you're not going to move up and move on into a beautiful new home, Mm -hmm. you're going to stay where you are and you're going to make it work. Yep. You know, and so that work, there's an inverse relationship there for us, you know, that a slow housing market actually probably is favorable in the sense that people will be calling us more because Mm -hmm. they've got to take care of the home that they're in. So we, we grew through those years and we were smaller at the time. And so our growth, I think, was probably taking up market share that other companies were, were feeling pinched on at Mm -hmm. the time. And again, the size of the company there, it was a good time for growth. And we didn't have a lot of exposure. We didn't have a, a lot of overhead. Mm-hmm. You know, for, for where we're at now in terms of our, our overhead commitment and just the critical mass that the company is at, I feel like we need to take the possibility of slower economic times very seriously because I'm not saying that we're some big thing these days, but, but we have taken a lot of market share. Mm-hmm. And so when the, if the water level, if the tide level drops as it does in a, mm-hmm. in a significant recession, I expect that we're going to be challenged with that more so than we were 10, 12 years ago when we were a much smaller team. So, you know, I, I think it was so pretending that you're a crystal, you have a crystal ball and you go, yeah, I see a recession at, you know, 14 months and three days down the road or, <laughs> right. you know, yeah. And you kind of go, so based on that as the directionality owner, we're going to prepare by this and execute on that. Do you have any thoughts about what you would do looking forward if a recession showed up? Well, I was attended a seminar a couple of weeks back where that very question was posed and we did an exercise. The question was, what would you do if your 2020 revenue was down 20%? Mm-hmm. And you, we got to wrestle with that, do business with that. Really think about how the company is structured. Are we really as efficient as we need to be mm-hmm. in terms of, and I'm talking about internal structure mm-hmm. now, right? Talking about how workflows happen, how chains of accountability happen, layers of management, so to speak. And, you know, you really, you really have to look at all those things and say, all right, where can we be more efficient? If the day comes as it inevitably will, where fewer people are calling for our help than they are today, mm-hmm. you know, how do we ensure our future and our success through that time? And you know, looking at, at those what if scenarios and, and not just thinking, well, maybe someday 10 years down the road, you know, we might have to deal with this. No, it, it could be a reality sooner than later time frame. Well, you know, I, there's, I think there's value in knowing what you're going to do, you know, and if it's two years or 10 years or five years down the road, you know, trees don't grow to the sky and the economy doesn't necessarily go always up. When you went to that get together, was it industry peers or broad industry or broad business owners? It was a, a broad based meeting of all kinds of industries. Oh, good. Uh, it was a what was called a Vistage CEO Summit in Denver. That's right. Yeah. And so you and our listeners may be familiar with Vistage. It's a CEO peer group. Yeah, I was actually there. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So in one of the breakout sessions, 
that was one of the questions posed to our group was, mm-hmm. you know, put yourself forward a year. We're in 2020. Revenues have slowed 20%. You know, what will you do? What will you need to do if this happens? Mm-hmm. So right. useful. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I, I think about the value of outside perspective and cross-pollination, for lack of a better term. You know, and, and you see the other business owners and some have been through the 08 timeframe like you did. And that was actually good for you. And other ones where they'd say, no, that was really, you know, like if they were selling appliances, that was not much fun. Right, right. You know, and so their perspective is different. You know, for you looking back over your business, there might have been a time where something didn't quite work out like it should have or like you thought. Right. And you go, well, there was a lesson learned, you know, and rolling forward, how did you take that particular challenge and learn and do better from it? And what was that like? Yeah. Um, I've got a painfully recent example to share with you. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> In uh, Q4 of 2017, we launched a product that we endeavored to really promote and get some traction with as we went through the winter months of 2018. That product we called Smart Foam. And that product uh, was a spray foam insulation that is designed, that can be used for retrofitting you know, homes, attics, crawl spaces, et cetera. And the reason, you know, you may wonder, somebody may ask, well, why would you get into home insulation? You know, that, that seems kind of maybe outside your strike zone a little bit. Well, I talked earlier about how we do concrete lifting and leveling. Mm-hmm. Well, that's done with a, actually a foam injection process. Mm-hmm. Some people get that confused with mud jacking and think that we're doing mud jacking. It's really not that at all. It's a, it's a completely newer technology, different technology. It involves putting two different chemicals together, mm-hmm. you know, in a reactor and spraying it out and it expands, you know, and there mm-hmm. are many different grades of foam. It can be used for many different things. Mm-hmm. We can lift concrete with it. But during the winter months when it's too cold for us to, to work on concrete slabs because they get frozen underneath, they get mm-hmm. stuck to the frost and you can't move them. We thought, gee, you know, we've got these trucks and this equipment. What if we could use them through the mm-hmm. winter months? And wouldn't, wouldn't the winter time be when people are interested in, beefing up their insulation and, you know, making those kinds of... All logical. It sounded totally logical. We we thought we had done our homework, done our research, but as we got into it, we had trouble estimating accurately. Uh, We had the complications on the installation side with the the production crews. It's a very different animal crawling through someone's attic, you know, where you can step through and hurt yourself or damage something than it is standing out in the driveway Mm -hmm. and pumping foam underneath the concrete. So there were challenges both on the sales uh, or front end as well as the operations or production on the back end. And we struggled with it for about six months. And uh, last June, we finally said, you know what? This is killing us. Our launch was not successful. We're willing to admit that. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, it's hurting us because not only is this new product division not thriving, not getting traction yet, but it's it's kind of caused us to lose our sharp edge in some of the other product lines mm-hmm. that our, our salespeople really need to be good at. Mm-hmm. You know, those traditional core lines, those the foundation repair, waterproofing, those services. And we had kind of gotten distracted, I think, and diluted a little bit mm-hmm. in our focus. So that was a that was a hard pill to swallow last June, where we just said, All right, we're pulling the plug on that. We're we're not going to be promoting that, marketing that, selling that anymore. We'll install the jobs that we have already sold, but we're going to get back to the basics and we, we need to 
do some retraining here. We need to really look at our competencies and our results in the core line things that we've become known for until, Mm -hmm. you know, prior to recently here as we've tried to launch this product line. That sounds like the silver lining, a refocus on core competencies and sharpening the saw. Yeah, it's certainly been that for the last, I'd say, since that June, so 14, 15 months now, whatever it's been, it's been a a period of, particularly in in the sales department, it's back to boot camp. It's... Mm -hmm. You know, it's back to the basics. It's the calisthenics. It's the, you know, the exercises, the mental exercises, the mm-hmm. technical training, the product application knowledge, the mm-hmm. diagnostic skills that we need our people to have when they go out to a home. You know, they first have to understand what's going on here. You know, mm-hmm. it's a lot of uh, knowledge and experience. That well, water migration is a strange thing. It is. And, you know, you could say it's wet over here and it could come from... Yeah. Absolutely. Anywhere else. Absolutely. It can show up in places it's never been. Mm-hmm. You know, it, if we only had a nickel for every time a, a customer had said, you know what? I've lived here 27 years and my basement's never done this before. And now all of a sudden I got two inches of water, you know? So it, yeah, water can behave in unpredictable ways. But yeah. but our, what's incumbent on us is is to understand those ways, understand how to discern what's actually happening around it under the home so that we can make recommendations that are going to solve the problem. You mm-hmm. know, you can't fix a basement with good intentions. You have to do it right. <laughs> yep. So. You know, you've got the junior guy and you've got the senior guy that, you know, this guy says, oh yeah, that came in from over there. I saw when it came in, you know, they, they've seen it before. Mm-hmm. And you've got the new guy. How do you transmit the knowledge from the really experienced person that can ferret out where you have a leak to the brand new person? How do you do that? So the biggest thing that we've found is that it routinely takes six months and it can take up to 12 months for a design specialist, which is our term and title for our sales staff, mm-hmm. to become fully versed and seasoned into everything that we do. Mm-hmm. They'll look at, they'll do about 350 to 400 home inspections in a year. That's moving. Well, it's about two a day, mm-hmm. four days a week. Mm-hmm. They have a fifth day a week that they have open to catch up on paperwork and make sure that mm-hmm. you know they're taking care of that. So that's about eight per week. That grinds out to you know throw in some vacation time, mm-hmm. PTO, whatever, and you're gonna you're gonna see about three hundred fifty to four hundred homes a year. And what we find is that over those months and over you know as they go from their first few inspections to a few dozen to scores to mm-hmm. eventually a few hundred, that there is more and more. Uh, knowledge and experience that just builds upon itself as they go. And there's a seasoning that takes place, mm-hmm. you know, in that kind of six to 12 month time frame. Now you may wonder, or somebody may ask, well, what about when they're learning? You know, are mm-hmm. they, are they out there on their own doing who knows what? No, we have a very rigorous program of support in the sales department where they have a lot of ride along assistance mm-hmm. where we have a, a senior manager or design specialist, you know, riding with them on appointments teaching, training as they go. They also have the ability to reach out to our production managers mm-hmm. here if they have a question about, hey, I'm looking at this kind of situation here. Maybe there's something that's a little bit of a different wrinkle about it. Mm-hmm. You know, Is this mm-hmm. something that we can handle with this type of product? They can make that phone call. They can also reach out to our engineers. Mm-hmm. And so when I refer to our engineers, I'm not talking about payroll employees here, part of our team. We have independent third-party uh, relationships with engineering firms mm-hmm. that, you know, provide that oversight and that professional design assistance. So 
So the newer guys, you know, or any of the sales guys really, but particularly as they're learning in those early months, you know, they've got direct access to the engineers to call with questions and get help on diagnosing and yeah. things like that. Pattern recognition, big deal. Right. That's right. You know, for you in, in, in looking at your allocation of time, what does a typical day look like for you if you had a perfect day and you allocated your time like you wanted? Uh, many of my days are, I'm in a lot of meetings and those are, those are typically be department level meetings. And I do that to maintain my situational awareness of what's mm -hmm. going on. Now we have reporting mechanisms and, you know, other things that where I am kept apprised of what's happening, but you know, there's, there's certainly a place for a live conversation. You know, if you're dealing with maybe a tricky personnel challenge or a customer issue, mm -hmm. or, you know, some of that's just got to be worked out with dialogue. And our teams here are really well able to resolve problems that come up and challenges. But as a business owner, I, I don't dare be blissfully ignorant. Mm -hmm. um, I want to maintain awareness of where the challenges are, where the pressure points are. So to your question, then I'm in quite a few meetings mm -hmm. and there are certain outside, you know, vendor relationships that I'm uniquely qualified to, to engage with mm -hmm. um, that might not necessarily be, you know, the vendor that we're buying our nuts and bolts from, but it might be others. It might be engineering firms that we're building relationships with. It might be, you know, banks and, you know, financial mm -hmm. vehicles you know, involved with the BBB, involved with, you know, my CEO peer group, mm -hmm. those kinds of things where I can get outside perspective. So I get a couple of days a week. Usually I'll have a lighter schedule on meetings and I try to get out to the field. Mm -hmm. I try to get out to job sites. Again, situational awareness. I want to see if, is the crew really doing what they've been trained to do? Mm -hmm. You know, now, I'm certainly not the only oversight they have, but now and then I don't think it hurts at all for the owner to show up unannounced when they're not expecting. And I don't come in heavy handed with a inspector's clipboard and the attitude of, Hey, I'm looking to catch you guys, you know, mm -hmm. missing something. I come in with, you know, cold monster drinks and mm -hmm. bag of chips and, you know, just a little encouragement, a little refreshment, things like that. Thanks for the hard work guys. Really appreciate, you know, what you're doing for our customers. But I do get that chance to kind of see what's going on maybe behind my back when they don't know I'm looking, but suddenly there I am, you know, you know, the I was at General's eight years ago and get in the field and we'd go to the mortar points and we'd go to the training exercises and then we'd get out and the general would go straight to the private or the NCO right on the front line and go, what are you doing here? When's the last time you ate a hot meal? What's your mission today? What'd mm -hmm. you learn? Mm -hmm. And, you know, and, and not picking on anybody, you kind of go, did it come from here and go down to here? And are they still doing it that way? Mm -hmm. And I think the people that you go visit and see you out there go like, he's in the field just like I'm in the field. Mm -hmm. I think there's enormous value. So there's this concept that you hear um, sometimes in management circles called management by walking around. Yeah. And here in the building, I do that by checking on how the afternoon loadout's going. The crew, mm -hmm. So the crews have come back for the day from their jobs. They get the trash off their trucks. They bring back leftovers and check those into the warehouse. They reload their truck for tomorrow. You know, I want to see how that's going. How efficiently are we turning that around? Yep. You know, I mean, I can look at reports, but sometimes you just want to see. Oh you, yeah, you, or you kind of you, you want to talk to the guys. You We're know? still doing it that way. Yeah, I mean, yeah, 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 yeah. Ask some questions, you know, and and likewise, I, I'm wandering around the warehouse, out in the yard. I I ask questions about this inventory doesn't belong here, and it's been sitting here for a week. Why is that? You know, or 
just mm-hmm. some of those things. We've got a mechanics bay uh, mm-hmm. here in the building, a full-time mechanic to work on that fleet and keep keep things on the road. And you know, sometimes there are questions there about what's happening. And so you can't be an effective senior manager or owner if you're always behind a computer, right? You have to get out and connect with your people, connect with your customers. That's the other fun part about getting out to the job sites is that it seems like probably three or four times out of five, the customer's home. Mm-hmm. I'll get to meet them shake their hand, introduce myself, thank them for their business. Well, that's a big deal. That's a big deal, I think. Yeah, I I don't think it's a big deal to meet me, but some customers enjoy that. They really, they feel honored that I took time to come by their home and check on things and say hello and thank them. It matters. It does matter, yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and we've been nowhere on script at all and been chatting away here for a while. And I, I guess for me, Looking out for the next five or 10 years, what type of things are you framing in your mind as you're considering if you have really good market share penetration? Yeah. What are you considering to grow your company? So that gets into the area of vision, uh-huh. right? And vision, as you know, as I have learned and, and, and has been modeled for me in terms of those that have mentored and helped me grow, vision is that hoped for future state. Mm-hmm. And it, it can be aspirational. It can be a little bit idealistic. It can be mm-hmm. like what Jim Collins called a BHAG, right? A big, mm-hmm. hairy, audacious goal. One that you may never fully realize. Yeah, but 80% of a BHAG is pretty good. Right, exactly. Yeah. And, so, and so here's our vision. You'll find this in our founding documents. You'll find this on the wall of our training room. Every home and workspace, stable, warm, and healthy. Mm-hmm. Every home and workspace, stable, warm, and healthy. Now, if you just look at our immediate geographic territory in the front range of Colorado, mm-hmm. I mean, we are talking about easily an 80 to $100 million a year market. Mm-hmm. If we were to make significant strides toward the fulfillment of that vision, there's that much need out there. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that's many times the size of our company today. Mm-hmm. We've got all kinds of growth opportunity. And in our admittedly idealistic uh, view of things, Mm -hmm. if every home and workspace were touched by our company, our communities would be much better off. Mm -hmm. If we could make those places stable, not subject to damage and and movement and loss of economic value, if we can make them warm through our crawl space insulation products and other Mm -hmm. things, and if we can make them healthy, which we do through lowering humidity, getting rid of mold, you know, things of that nature, then I'm going to be pretty happy with that at the end of the day. You know, so, Paul, I, I don't, I have a, a client that's a professor at Stanford and he's an architect and he's talking about the clean homes and healthy homes. And I think for years and years, that was not really well understood about how sick you can get from your own home. Right. I have a client in Texas. I was li- living in a home that had black mold. She had MS uh, symptoms. Moved out of the place, got in a clean place, has no symptoms anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, and you think about, you know, the, the mission of trying to do your part to make people lead a healthier and happier life. That's a pretty good mission. Yeah, we think so. Yeah. We think so. Yeah, the way we see it, we've, we've got it uh, broken down into four big ideas. Our, our purpose, our vision, our mission, and our values. And so that purpose, again, growing our people to their fullest potential. Now, somebody might say, well, what do you mean? Isn't it about fixing foundations? Isn't it about houses and repairs? And well, that's what we do. That's more in the area of our mission. Mm -hmm. But the reason we do it 
the thing that gets me up in the morning, gets me fired up is growing our team members, seeing their families prosper, seeing young guys come in here and learn a skilled trade learn and, a trade and, and go from a rattle trap, you know, buggy that they were hardly getting to work in to buying that first nice, reliable mm-hmm. or new vehicle, you know, likewise, you know, seeing young families, you know, we've, we've got a, a few couples that have gotten together here over the mm-hmm. years and started mm-hmm. families and seeing them buy their first house, mm-hmm. you know, seeing them begin to grow their family. Mm-hmm. That, that is very, very exciting to me to be able to help them along their journey in those ways. So that's for us, that's purpose. You know, mm-hmm. I mentioned vision, every home and workspace, stable, warm, and healthy. If that's the goal, and we live in a very populous area with lots and lots of need, but we've got a huge, we've got a lot of work to do. We've mm-hmm. got a long runway ahead, a lot, mm-hmm. a long ways to go still. The mission, Bob, for us is this, to consistently deliver remarkable experiences. Mm-hmm. That is our mission. So it's again, it's we work in the environment in the context of home repair, but you can hire any Tom, Dick, or Harry. You can hire any Joe pickup truck and get something done. Mm-hmm. But you know, to consistently deliver a remarkable experience that makes that customer want to fist pump and want to mm-hmm. tell their neighbors about you know how how much value they felt they received and how and what a great uh, manner in which we took care of their problem. You know that that's the magic. That's what I felt was lacking in this market 17 years ago when I first became aware of this specialty niche. Mm-hmm. And so for us, you know, that that is what we're all about. The values, core values, if I might take a moment on. Oh, yeah. For us, um, and we're kind of borrowing this from Pat Lencioni, hungry, humble, and smart mm-hmm. are what we value. It's what we look for in those we hire, in those we promote. You know, if somebody has a, a disciplinary problem or a need for coaching or redirection, it's probably because somewhere in the area of hungry, humble, or smart, mm-hmm. they're coming up short. Yep. So those are core values here that you know we we hire, train, promote, and dehire when necessary mm-hmm. on those values. Well, Paul, I'll tell you what, this has been a joy. I love hearing about your business and the success and uh, really look forward to hearing of all your continued success as you take and help homeowners preserve their home and make it healthier. Thanks. It's been a wild ride. It's been a lot of fun. <laughs> Pretty stressful at times, but we're uh, we're coming through and we're seeing a really bright future ahead. It's it's been really fun to chat with you. Real honor to to be on your show today. Well, thank you so much for your time. A pleasure.